0: seems that we are a culture that loves trailers not the kind you pull behind your truck well actually we love those too but movie trailers seems seems it's every couple of days or every couple of weeks that you see a trailer and you are already making plans in, in 6 months down the road to uh, you you know what you are going to be seeing when that movie comes out how many have already made plans to see the the sequel to top gun okay Everyone who grew up in the 80s and 90s was drooling when that trailer came out. Trailers have a way of of making us look to the future and, uh, and, and, and cause us to, to gnaw with anticipation as, as when it's going to happen and how it's going to come out. Jesus is providing a trailer for the last days in Mark chapter 13. We have seen how he has pulled back the veil of time to tell his disciples and through them to tell us what will transpire in the last days and the point of the whole discourse the point of the whole message and the whole sermon is that things will feel like they are falling apart it will feel like god has lost control things will be so bad but god will not have lost control he god will not be uh, uh, responding haphazardly and chaotically to the terrible things that will happen, he will not be given lemon, lemons and trying his best to make lemonades. I should encourage us to know that the Lord knows these things and is, and has disclosed to his disciples and to us so that they will know that history and in fact. I mean, all history and all circumstances of the world, whether the world is tranquil and peaceful or appears to be falling apart, all circumstances are firmly in the sovereign hands of a sovereign God. That is the, that is the point of the whole message, of the whole Olivet discourse. The future is squarely in the sovereign hands of God. Now, there were, I think, seven or eight points on the outline. Yeah, so I, I need to be like as swift as the hind today, so I'm not going to uh, repeat all of those, but suffice to say, we're going to be in this series for several weeks. We are, we've already looked at the first sign which will portend the Lord's return. That was the arrival of many false teachers and false Christs and the the apostasy Not just an apostasy, but the apostasy in that many will be misled. And then the second sign we will see today is the devastation of wars. The devastation of wars. And then I'm hoping also to touch upon the disasters of nature in verse eight. Let's read, uh, let's read these two verses seven and eight. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, Do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And then as as an afterthought or, or a side detail, there will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Let's examine the second sign: the devastation of wars. Uh, some statistics, a little statistics, never hurt anybody. From nineteen, from 1496 BC, that's approximately uh, the time of the the Joshua conquest, to AD 1861, the world has known 3,130 years of war. Only 227 years have been war free from the dawn of history to approximately the 12th century it is estimated there were 13,835 wars and that figure is a little hard to estimate because it's hard to tell when a small skirmish becomes a war but that's that's a, that's a rough estimate over almost 14,000 and in the in the past 300 years there have been approximately 3 Hundred Wars General Douglas MacArthur Said to a graduating class at West Point Only the dead Have seen the end of War And so when Jesus says that there's going to be Wars and rumors of wars that The knee jerk reaction in light of those Statistics and in light of what you see On the news every single day The knee jerk reaction would be well uh, Duh what else is new The point here is that the world is not going to get better and better and better. And in fact, it's not even going to stay the same. It's going to get worse and worse, especially as the end draws near. As bad as it has been and as bad as it is now, the end, as the end draws near, the world will be torn apart by an abundant increasing of strife and conflict. Verse 7, Jesus says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, and this is a way of encapsulating conflict and wars and fighting and strife all over the globe hearing of wars uh, would mean that you are hearing firsthand from a primary source from the news uh, of wars that are nearby perhaps and likely a war that your own country is even in in the united states this could very well take place if and when the states were to secede from uh, from each other and be at war with one another Rumors of wars speaks to wars that are far away, and, and the news that a war has begun, the news of their development, the news of, of how it got started, or whether or not the, the conflict is actually confirmed or not, that is just now starting to trickle in. Now notice that both wars and rumor of wars are in the plural. There are many. And the point is this. It's quite emphatic. There is is going to be no shortage of war. There's going to be no shortage of conflict. There's going to be no shortage of death and devastation. War will be local. War will be global. The entire planet is going to be engulfed. It's going to be a battlefield. War will be everywhere. And as bloody as the world has been, going to get bloodier. The conflict will be greater. The extent will go further. The magnitude of the destruction will go higher. The scope of the engagement will be larger. The toll will be catastrophic. And so it will certainly be a frightening time to live in. And yet, what does Jesus say to his disciples who will be living in those days? That's right. Do not be Frightened, you see the middle of verse 7. It will be time of civil terror. It will be a time of unrest and political upheaval and, and great uh, uh, societal difficulty as the bastions of stability and as the pillars of society begin to crumble and fall apart and fall by the wayside. It will certainly, certainly, undeniably, without reservation, feel like history has just spun out of control. And if people are asking now, how could a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? They will be asking that left and right in the days to come. If there is a God, he must have lost control of the wheel. Where is God in all this? Jesus says, don't be frightened. Why does he say that? Well, he answers, he answers the, the, the implied question. He, he answers the why. He says, because those things must Take place see that that is the same word that word must uh, uh, it's a word that expresses necessity and, and, and in Mark's usage divine necessity this is the same word where he said back in chapter 831 the Son of man must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be rejected and killed and die and rise again. These things will not. These conflicts, these wars, this escalation of fighting and death and devastation—they won't be senseless. They won't be unnecessary. They must happen. Is that shocking to anybody? It's shocking to me when I first thought about it. That these things must happen. I mean, don't we question that when when we are devastated on some idle Tuesday with by something that just. Shocks us. We think that it's senseless and unnecessary. When evil happens to us today, it will certainly be felt to be that way in these days to come, but they must happen. Why? Because the tribulation, scripture tells us, will be the occasion where God's patience, God's forbearance, runs out. It's the time where God will say, That's enough. Enough is enough. He's going to roll up his sleeves and he's going to judge the world for all its evils, for all its atrocities, for all its perversions, for all its crimes, crimes against God, crimes against one another. And these things must happen by divine necessity. So, yes, they must happen. And they will be God's plan. So he says to his disciples in those days, don't be frightened. As if to suppose that God's not in control. Because God will not have lost control. That will be the very thing that God intends to do as Christ unrolls the scrolls that we read about and will read in Revelation 6. And th- these are just going to be the beginning. God will have much more in store. And we even see that in what Jesus says in the last phrase of verse 7. That, speaking, I think, uh, probably including the arrival of the uh, many false teachers and false Christs and the and the great apostasy, certainly including the wars and the rumors of wars and the earthquakes and, and famines, or, uh, sorry, wars and rumors of wars, that, that encapsulated uh, information he's just given, that is not the end. You will think that it is the end. It will certainly feel like it is the end. Jesus says, that is not the end. There is more... To come, and he, we see that reflected in how, in how Jesus stretches this out uh, in verse eight. He says, "For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom." And this is this is a uh, one of few occasions where I'm not satisfied with the way the NASB translates this text uh the will rise up is in the passive it should say for nation will be raised up against nation and kingdom against kingdom and theologians um, they like to come up with terms that you know make them sound like they know what they're talking about and this this would be called the divine passive and that's where it's not explicitly said who's actively responsible or involved for the action but the implication is it's god doing that So the point is is that God will be raising up these nations one against another and another and another and kingdom against kingdom. These nations... And the men and women who lead these nations, they will feel like they are the key players. They will appear like they are the key players. They're the ones who will appear to be actively involved. They're the ones who are making the moves publicly. They're the ones who will be responsible for the for the intrigue and the negotiations and sacrifices that are made behind closed doors. They will be the ones who are visibly responsible for the alliances for the for the moves of offenses and the strikes and the treaties and the embargoes that will be made, whether they're public whether they are kept private, yet they will be the tools of a sovereign God who as paul as um, Paul says in acts seventeen twenty six he determines the boundaries and the appointed times uh of habitation for all the nations of the world. In the Old Testament we see this uh, on a number of occasions and uh, uh many texts but I'll just say as Isaiah 10:5 we see God raising up this Assyrians he calls them the rod of his anger. He uses them as a tool as a utility as a means for disciplining and judging his His people, specifically the northern kingdom of Israel. And those of you who know your Old Testament know that they tried to do the same to the southern kingdom and uh, things didn't go so well for them. That was because God rose them up for a purpose. He used them to achieve that purpose. And when their purpose was done, he brought them low. And likewise, with the kingdom of Babylon in Isaiah 39, 6, he rose them up and used them to smash the southern kingdom of Judah, to judge them, to discipline them. They were carried off in exile for 70 years in captivity. And then he brought them low again. Now, for this, you have to um, uh, either read Daniel, but uh, extra-biblical history tells us that the, that God used the Medo-Persians. Actually, with you know the incident with the writing on the wall? That was the occasion where God brought the Babylonian... Kingdom, low By uh, that that very day or that that night, the Medo Persians came in and killed the Babylonian king. God has done it time and time and time and time again. Few times were made were made known when and how He did it. Every other time we're not told doesn't mean He didn't do it. He's done it time and time and time again, and in the final days, he's gonna do it on a global scale that will make the what he did with Assyria and Babylon's gonna seem like child's play. Now the gospel, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us the bones or the framework of these last days. We get the abbreviated versions. And just like we did last week by going to 2 Thessalonians, we can go to other scriptures to, to put some flesh on the bones, to, to put some color on the, on the, the frame of, uh, and so that we can get a fuller picture so that we can flesh out what's going to happen. And to flesh out what Jesus says in verse 6, uh, or I'm sorry, in, in 7 and 8, we're gonna turn to Revelation 6. So turn, turn over there. And as you're turning there, if you put your finger in that it should be a real quick turn. Let me tell you that after revelation 3 uh, you get to revelation 4. That's amazing. Revelation 4 to 18 is the backbone. It is the it is the bulk. It is a it is a chunk of text in revelation that comes after John has written to the seven churches. Uh, there's there's a, a, a brief scene in chapters 4 and 5. There's a heavenly scene where the exalted and the glorified Lord Jesus Christ is opening the scroll with seven seals, which as they open, as each seal is broken, each seal is unleashing the subsequent events that you read in the rest of Revelation. Revelation 6 to 18 to be specific. And I am going to make this, hear me, I'm going to make this as painless as possible. But we have to go to Sunday school for a few minutes. There are four major schools of interpretation regarding these chapters. Chapters 6 through 18. And it's important to note these because solid, credible, good, sound, solid Christians can meet together... And have wildly varying interpretations of what to do and how to read Revelation 6 to 18. Good Christians can walk away with different interpretations and different applications of these texts. And so it's important just to know that. And I'm going to give you uh, what I think is the right position and why. But here are these four positions. I'm going to try to make this quick and painless. We'll see how I do. First is the preterist position. It comes from the Latin word, which means the past, and that is exactly why it's called the Preterist position, because it's looking to the past. It, this view takes Revelation 6 to 18 and the Olivet Discourse, and it interprets it as something that has already happened, primarily with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and some Preterists also throw in the collapse of the Roman Empire from the um, barbarian tribes in the early 5th century, but mainly 70 A.D. That's the preterist. That's the past position. Then there's the historical position. Revelation 6 to 18 and all of its discourse isn't just looking at the 1st century or even the 4th century. It's looking at many centuries because Revelation 6 to 18 is a panorama, uh, a flannel graph, a, a storyboard of church history and beginning in chapter 6 and walking through the this detail in chapter 6 points to uh the collapse of the uh Roman Empire or or this detail points to uh, the fall of Jerusalem this chapter this text looks to the it, it is fulfilled in the christianization of the Roman Empire and this points to the barbarian hordes this points to the rise of Islam this points to the papacy and so on and so on and the fulfillments of of what happens on verse by verse, chapter by chapter, there are sometimes centuries between the fulfillments, um, and so on and so forth. That's the historical. The third view is the idealistic, and it's similar to the historical in that it sees Revelation to six to eighteen fulfilled in patterns or or, or uh, throughout church history and world history. This, uh, like the historical it see the idealistic sees this text fulfilled in this event or the rise of this person or this movement but where it differs is, the, is it is this text can also be fulfilled over here so te, uh, events and details that you read in revelation can potentially have multiple fulfillments and so there's there's what you read in revelation uh, is depicts the pattern that you see when you look at church history. Then there is the right position. I mean, I'm sorry, the the futurist position. Gave gave my hand away. Uh, The futurist position, which is like the preterist, uh, it's it's interpreting Revelation 6 to 18 as historical narrative, as sequential uh, uh, fulfillments that are, closely associated in time and this view reflects what I what I argue is a straightforward reading and assessment of the narrative it's unlike the preterist position because you're not looking to the past but you're looking to the future you're looking forward for their fulfillment and unlike the historical and the idealistic positions they're, they're not fulfilled by patterns they're not fulfilled by symbolism. They're not fulfilled by spiritualizations or allegory. And they're not fulfilled by events and people and places and movements that occur sometimes centuries or even potentially millennia apart from each other. This, this view proposes that Revelation 6 to 18 will be fulfilled by a series of events that are very sequential within a relatively short span of time such as seven years. Now, I'm going to give you two reasons why I believe the futurist position is the right position. One, the the Olivet Discourse is not looking at a protracted, long period of time. The, The context is clear. It is looking at the end. That is what the disciples asked Jesus about. What are the signs of the end of the age? What are the signs of thi- of everything being wrapped up, brought to conclusion? What is the sign that you're going to come back and put a f- put a finish to everything with your with your presence? And you read Revelation six to eighteen, you see the very same signs that Jesus depicts in the Olivet Discourse, only in much greater detail. It's like Peter Jackson came along and made a made a, a three protracted movies out of a little book. When you finish chapter eighteen, and all these signs have come to pass, what do you get? The return of Jesus Christ so the, I believe the purpose of the passage is to give a series of signs that once they begin indicate that the return of Jesus is imminent. It is, he is just, uh, you could say, just around the corner. And Jesus will even say that these events are the beginning of birth pangs. You ladies out there know what birth pangs are, don't you? When the birth pangs start, that doesn't mean the baby is going to come six months down the road. When the when the contractions start, when the birth pangs start, once they begin, they increase and they intensify and they come harder and faster. And very soon, what happens? Baby. And you see this, you, you, you can see this even in verse 29 and 30 of Mark 13. And you're not there, so don't turn back. But he says that surely this generation, I think he's talking about not the generation that is living at the time he's speaking, the generation that is alive when these events start to happen, surely this generation will not pass away. So this doesn't allow the preterist view, which would require everything to happen in 70 AD, and you would have to, you would have to somehow fit the, the, um, the, uh, cosmological signs and the stars falling to heaven and the moon turning to blood and the son of man returning with the, with the heavenly angels, you'd have to fit that somewhere in the 70 AD. That didn't happen. And the historical and idealistic views, which say that the signs have begun, but it could be another decade, it could be another century, it could be another millennia. Before the signs finish and Jesus comes back, I believe the intent is once they start, you can set your timex or, or t- you can set your timer because it's going to happen soon. Secondly, if you read Revelation six to eighteen at face value, if you make very basic, very simple, very elementary observations, if you don't, if you leave the commentary on the on the shelf and you don't go to the internet, if you draw your own Basic conclusions without any helps, without any scholars or systems or people telling you how to interpret it. Revelation 6 to 18 depicts events and phenomena that has never, I think, obviously never happened before in the history of the world. Not in 70 AD or in any century of the world so far. For example, there's never been an occasion where a fourth of the world's population died or or a subsequent one third who were who were killed or died in one at one time. I mean the Black Plague was close, but that's only if you are looking at Europe. That, that's not if you're looking at the whole earth. A third of the earth has never been burned up. A third of California has burned up, but not a third of the earth. A third of the trees haven't been uprooted, and all the grass hasn't been burned up. I can see some of it right out there. A third of the ocean's sea life haven't died yet. A third of the ships in the whole world haven't been destroyed. A third of the rivers and springs and drinking sources haven't become undrinkable because they've been made into wormwood. Commerce hasn't yet been controlled by one individual who will have the ability and the power to affect everybody who lives on the earth, no matter where you live. I mean, Alan Greenspan came close, but... The entire ocean and river and lake hasn't yet been turned to blood, and all the fish in said bodies of water haven't yet suffocated yet. Last time I checked, Trapper's Sushi in North Bend is still serving delicious sushi. Right, Ben? That's right. The Euphrates River, which runs through modern-day Iraq, hasn't yet dra- dried up, and there hasn't been uh, an army of 200 million soldiers marching into Palestine, and the Battle of Armageddon has not yet been fought. And so, those who say that these uh, these 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 prophecies, these portions of text, these verses, they don't point far into the future. Uh, they, they they point to this event. They point to that to the rise of this man or this movement in history or this group, or to say that these things have taken place already uh, in seventy A.D. Uh, I believe that is a, an impossible, and unfair, and unnecessary job of of forcing a spiritualized interpretation on a rather large volume of text. To say that this this detail points to the third century and and this detail points to the 4th century, and this detail points to the papacy, I, I believe that is uh, stri- pushing the envelope, especially when John doesn't seem to give us any aids or clues as to how to interpret the text. When he when there is symbolism, he does give you clues, and he often will interpret what the symbol is. So I, I think I think the futurist view is the best and the right. But as I said, good men, good sound men, uh, can can part ways with different interpretations on these texts. This isn't something to divide over. So let's briefly survey uh, war in the last days according to Revelation. And so if you are in Revelation 6, uh, mind you, this is not going to be an exhaustive examination. We're going to try to do our best to do a survey. In Revelation 6, 1, through tw- uh, one and 2, we see we, we are introduced to a rider of the of a white horse, and we're not told whether or not you know, th- this could be the Antichrist. It could be uh, Satan. It could be a demon. I do believe it is a it is a person. It is it is an entity with personality. Whether it's a man or or an uh, a fallen angel, he is given a bow, and a uh, uh, if you see uh, a crown. Yeah, he, he is given, he's sitting on a white horse, he has a bow, and a crown was given to him. This is not the crown with many diadems that you see in Revelation 19. This is more of like a little leafy laurel, but I, I just referenced Revelation 19. Looking at this, who does that look like? If you've read Revelation 19, who does that look like? Looks like Jesus who comes on a white horse and whose eyes are a brazing uh, blazing fire and who has a, uh, a big crown with many diadems and with a sword that comes out of his mouth which with which he can slay the nations so this is why i suppose that he is the antichrist because it, it appears compared to revelation 19 that he is an imposter he's a mockery of the christ that's to come but if you look at ver- at the end of verse 2 what is he given power to do and what what does he go and do once he arrives on the scene he goes out conquering and to conquer and that's just a, that's an emphatic way to say this man's business is about warfare. And then uh, the next two verses we're, we're we're introduced to another rider. This one is on a red horse and he it could just be a legitimate red horse or the, it could be a horse that is splattered with blood. Uh, he goes out and to him it was granted to take peace from. The earth. With what result? That men would to get together and sip tea and play chess and No, that men would slay one another and a great sword was given to him. He whatever semblance of peace there was, he replaces that peace with war. He takes the peace away. And he causes men to slay one another. Go over to chapter nine, verse thirteen. This is war at the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River begins in modern-day Turkey. It is a massive river. It runs for 1,700 miles, and it runs through modern-day Iraq, which is ancient Babylon. And 9.13 says, 9.14 says, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And Verse fifteen. What 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 are they released to do? They have been prepared for the hour and day and month and year. They have these these and and these are not good angels. These are not precious moments, angels. These are demons because good good angels are not bound. You can see in uh, in First Peter three nineteen and twenty and Jude six. Those are two New Testament references to angels being bound. These are demons. What is the purpose of them? They have been prepared for what? To kill. And they they have even been prepared for this very moment. How, how much more emphatic could you be? They've been prepared for this hour and day and month and year. And the command for them to be released is coming from heaven. And their, res, their effect is that they would kill a third of mankind. And they would do that presumably through the armies of the horsemen, already mentioned. Did I mention that the army of two hundred? Oh, I don't have time to look for this. Where is that? Oh yeah, there, there we go. Maybe, I, maybe if I just read the text, the number of the armies of the horsemen was two hundred. Million. He's not, he's not guessing how many there. Are. He has been informed by, by a divine agent, perhaps an angel who knows the number. He's been given the number, 200 million. Do you realize that in the, in the middle of the 20th century, the size of the German army that caused the most havoc and wrecked terror on the world was only about 2 to 3 million million? That was the size of the German forces when they terrorized Europe. Now, the the, the total German forces uh, amounted to about 12 million, but a lot of that was just a grinding stone uh, in Russia, so I don't count those. Two to three million Germans terrorized the majority of the known world at the time. 200 million soldiers. Go to Revelation eleven, and I'm I'm running out of time. I need to summarize this. This is this is worth your reading. This is where God raises up and He appoints two witnesses. They're going to be preachers. They're not they're not soldiers. They are preachers. You can see that in in verse three. Uh, he, God appoints them. Uh, he gives them authority. They will prophesy. That's a that's a Uh, A biblical way, that's a a fancy way to say that they're preaching for 1,260 days. And I don't think you need to interpret that spiritually. I think the the longevity, the duration of their ministry will be 1,260 days. And they're clothed in sackcloth. And uh, and look at verse 5. If anyone anyone wants to harm them, they are not going out with the intention of, or with the prerogative to cause harm, they're going out preaching, but the world is going to hate godly preaching so much that people are going to want to harm them. But if anyone does want to harm them or tries to harm them, look at what happens in verse 5. Fire flows out of their mouth and devours that enemy. That's not because they ate a burrito with hot sauce. And he must be killed in this way, and they will have power to shut up the sky and rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. That is a that is good old-fashioned Old Testament prophet and a, a little bit of the of a apostolic uh, power as well. So the after when their appointed time is over, look at down in verse middle of verse 7, the beast is going to come up out of the abyss. Uh, I think he's already been... Uh, working behind the scenes, but he, he makes himself known. He makes war with them. He's going to overcome them and kill them. Where where He's going to succeed where nobody else could. Their, verse 8, their dead bodies are going to lie in the street in the great city, with Jerusalem, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt. It's called Sodom because they're going to be so captivated by gross immorality. They're going to be like Sodom. They're going to persecute those who are faithful to God, like Egypt, and we know it. this is Jerusalem because this is where their Lord was crucified. And, those who, and all the peoples of the world are going to look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and they're not even going to permit the bodies to be buried. They're going to want to rejoice and gloat and keep those carcasses in the streets as a trophy, as an edifice to their glory and to their success and their triumph. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and it will be Happy Dead Prophet's Day. They will send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those by their preaching, mind you, who dwell on the earth. And now you can read in the rest of that how God's going to raise them up, but that's that's a that's a pretty epic scene of warfare there. We'll go to Revelation sixteen. Finally get to Armageddon, Revelation 16, 12 to 16. The Euphrates is going to dry up, allowing the beast's armies to, uh, uh, which may already be in Jerusalem. Uh, it, the the context suggests in verse uh, verse 1 and 2 that the, that the temple mount, that the outer court will already be uh, contested by the beast, but that the temple itself will be secure. The Euphrates River is going to dry up, and, and the, the beast's forces already in Jerusalem are going to be reinforced by the armies of the kings from the east. Who's from the east? Well, you have China, you have uh, Iran, you have Iraq, you have, I mean, really everybody is to the east of Palestine. Who isn't from the east? And they are going to join where? Look at verse 16 they will gather together to the place which is called har that's um, that's called Ma- that's mount mageddon mount of mageddon Armageddon. mageddon that is where they're going to gather they're going to assemble uh go to um revelation 19:11 where we see the conclusion of the battle now this, this is where this is where the the the, the tide turns this is where there, there's a, a great shift. And John saw the hev- saw heaven opened and a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And what does he do in righteousness? He judges, and he declares war. He points his sovereign finger at his enemies and says, it is, it is, you are condemned, it is time for you to die. And he executes war in justice, in, in righteousness. In verse 13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Not the blood of the cross, this is the blood of his enemies. And his armies are clothed in white and clean linen, verse 14. They're not, they're not getting anything on him. Why is that? Who's doing the fighting? Jesus is. Unlike every army who has ever existed before this point where the the soldiers and the armed forces go in the front and the, the general, the leaders stay in the back, they do the pointing, or they do the declaring, and they do the fight, and the soldiers do the fighting. In this, he does the fighting, they do the declaring, and they follow behind. look down at verse 15 he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God and go to verse 19 to see the to see the outcome i saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army so And he measured its wall, 72 yards. Uh, Okay, go down. Oh, I'm in chapter 21. That's why it's not making sense. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and um, those who worshiped his image these were thrown alive in the lake of fire and burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword Which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse He does the fighting he does the winning he does the conquering and all the birds All the carrion Animals the the, the ravens the crows the eagles the vultures all the birds were filled with the flesh of his enemies Talk about a Massacre So yes, in the final days, there will be war. There will be an escalating war. There will be great war, and it will be finished with the battle that where Jesus Christ himself will ensure victory. So it's going to get bad. Along with the devastation of war comes disasters of nature. And it's not enough that men... And nations will be raised up and be at war with with one another. It's going to seem as if the earth wants to join in as well. Don't turn back to Mark 13. Jesus says there, he continues, there will be earthquakes in various places. When I lived in California, we used to talk about the big one. There's a big one coming. Well, the big one can't even hold a candle to these quakes They'll be so massive. They will be so catastrophic. Buildings will collapse. I mean, in, in, in any serious earthquake, buildings collapse, and bridges fall, and trees are uprooted, telephone lines are pulled down, rivers are rerouted, which causes flooding in some areas. We know about the, all that here, don't we? Pipelines will burst. Highways and roads become impassable. Homes be- will, will need to be evacuated. Uh, many homes will be destroyed. Some homes will even just outright disappear as they fall into sinkholes and pits. Communication will be cut off as communication centers and as, as satellite uh, dishes and arrays are destroyed. Lives will be lost. Fuel and food, uh, food reserves are going to be depleted. The, the, the ability to make more is going to be hindered. The reserves uh, will be destroyed What's currently available will be depleted. The power is going to be out. Fire and police, uh, emergency services are going to be completely overwhelmed. Hospitals that aren't destroyed are going to be completely overwhelmed, completely packed. And you all know what happens when there's chaos out there. There's going to be fires. There's going to be riots. There's going to be looting. And you won't be able to go anywhere. And anything you need, you will not be able to get now, we see, we see a couple earthquakes. Uh, go back to Revelation 6, 12 to 14. I looked, and when he broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, presumably black hair. So imagine a, imagine a potato bag made out of a, a hair from a black goat hold it up to your eyes. You're going to see much? You're going to see through that? And the whole moon became like blood. Presumably there's going to be volcanic eruption and there's going to be so much ash. There's going to be so much sediment and, uh, and, and pollutants in the air that even the sun and the stars are going to seem I mean, has anyone been in a fire where there's so much there's so much uh, uh, smoke particles in the air that even in the middle of the day it seems like it's Dusk. It's very unnerving, isn't it? It's going to be like that all over the world, and the stars of the sky are going to fall to the earth like a fig tree when its unripe figs are shaken by a great wind. Ker-plump, kerplunk, kerplunk, kerplunk. Um, there's another in Revelation 13. Uh, I'm going to skip that one. Let's go to Revelation 16. Let's look at the big one. The, the big, big quake. Revelation 16. 18 to 20. There were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and a great earthquake. Magos. Do I, do I have to in, uh, translate that word for you? Magos seismos. Great earthquake such ha- and just to just to let john tell you let john compare this quake to every other quake that's ever happened such as there had not been since man came to be on the earth so great an earthquake was it and so mighty the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell this is talking about jerusalem babylon the great remember how remember how john already described Jerusalem at that time. Babylon's not a positive way to describe her now. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Look at this. Every island fled away. Every island vanishes. And the mountains were not found. You could look out these windows... And it would, you would think that you were somewhere in the Midwest where your dog can run away for two weeks and you can still see it. There will be no mountains. It will be flat. Every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And then back in Mark 13, in verse 8... Uh, just uh, Jesus throws this in almost as a side note. And I want to I want to include this here because it goes so well with with these two signs. He says there will also be famines and. God is sovereign. He could just decree and and ordain uh, and supernaturally work it out so that crops don't. Don't produce and they're not harvested and there's a shortage and a supply we 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 saw that a couple uh, Several weeks back when joseph was in egypt, right? We we saw him cause a seven-year famine God could do that, but I don't think he's going to need to to supernaturally do anything because what events have we seen occur Total devastation wars and massive earthquakes just think about the escalation of those wars and the ensuing destruction and the shifting of geopolitical boundaries with, with this nation and that nation and this state and that state uh, constantly changing alliances and embargoes and then, and then you throw on widespread uh, devastation by earthquakes on top of that. Just think about this, for example. Do you know where the majority of the United States food, foodstuffs are produced and harvested? where midwest Midwest. just presuppose if the states were to secede and become individual states and all of a sudden the the states of the midwest didn't want to send or perhaps they couldn't send because the roads have been destroyed and there's no fuel for the trucks what are we going to do for food unless you learn how to cook pine tree Revelation, uh, uh, turn to Revelation 6 real quick. We're just going to look at one. Revelation 6, 5 to 6. There's a third horseman. When he, he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. That doesn't sound good. And he... who sat on it, had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius. Remember, a denarius is what you would earn for a full day's worth of work. Can you make a lot with a quart of wheat? That's that's enough to make one mediocre-sized loaf of bread. So a, a man would work a full day and earn enough food to feed himself For one meal, kind of. Imagine what you would do if you had a family. Oh, and by the way, don't damage the oil and the wine because they are expensive. Then we read in verse eight, an ashen horse. That's that's sick. That's a sickly horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. It's an appropriate name for this rider. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence. Remember, there, there have been people dying out in the streets, earthquakes. So many people have died that there is no possible way to bury the bodies in any reasonable fashion. So bodies are rotting out in the streets. The wild beasts, maybe the, these are rats, these are scavengers. And they are spreading the disease that comes along with the famine. And Jesus says, these things, these are not the end in and of themselves. This is the beginning. These are the birth pangs. These are the things that, these are the contractions that will start. And it's only going to get worse. But it also means he's around the corner so what do we do with this well one jesus is telling us how it's going to end i mean you see you see this right jesus is telling us how it's going to end so remember what was it 18 19 years ago remember the y2k craze yeah well if the lord tarries for for a, another millennia, and Y3 craze comes along, it's not going to be Y3K. It's not going to be global warming. The, the world isn't going to end because of aliens. The world's not going to end because of climate change. The world's not going to end because of whatever the next Mayan calendar that's supposed to whatever. It's not going to be because we're going to collide with a meteor or with a planet. We're not. It's not going to be because the sun is going to, the, the, the sun's battery is just going to Go dead, and it's not going to be because we're going to run out of resources. History is not going to spiral out of God's control, and He's telling us how it's going to end. And that leads us to the second point. We know it's going to end the way He says it's going to end because He's going to be the one doing the ending. He is the one found worthy. He is the one he's the only one who has the authority and who uh, with whom it's appropriate to open the scrolls that are unleashing the, this phenomena in, Rome, in Revelation 6. And it's right for him to end it because he is the Lord. He is the sovereign one. He is the one as Matthew 28:20 20 says has been given all authority. In heaven and earth. that's that's pretty much, That pretty much sums it up. I don't think there's any authority left. That's not his. He's the one opening the scrolls. He has the right to judge. He has the right to judge an apostate Israel. He has the right to judge an apostate and rebellious earth. Because it's his. We're going to sing a song in a minute. One of the lines is, the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be what? Satisfied. Because he's going to see to it. Let's pray and then we'll transition into communion. Lord, we are reminded again that you know all things. You know exactly how it's going to play out. And you're not worried. So Lord, cause us not to be worried, especially as we may have friends or family who are uh, prone to fear, prone to anxiety uh, as they think the world is may come to an end, especially as their world may be coming to an end. Lord, uh, use these precious people, use these beloved saints to witness and to testify to their friends and to their families help them to have a reasoned defense for the hope that is within them help them to help us all help me help us all to articulate to explain why we trust in the lord jesus christ the way we do and why when the world feels like it's falling apart and falling into shambles why we don't lose heart And why we don't give in to despair. Use us to minister and to evangelize and to witness to a watching world. Amen.